This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello and welcome to The Twilight Show. Thanks for joining me. Today, my special guest is Colm Peter Downs. Colm is a teacher, project manager, and ELT and climate change educational specialist. And today, we'll be talking about how English language teaching can help tackle global challenges. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to The Twilight Show, everyone. I'm Graham Stanley speaking to you live from Mexico City. As I mentioned earlier on today's show, I'll be talking to Colm Peter Downs about how English language teaching, ELT, can help tackle global challenges such as inequality, climate change, war and conflict. Colm has been involved in education, specifically language education and professional skills training, for over 25 years, working across Europe, the Middle East and East Asia. He's the author of the Cambridge English for Job Hunting for Cambridge University Press and English for United Nations Peacekeepers for the British Council. Between 2019 and 2022, Colm served as the Director English Education and Society for the British Council Indonesia and was the British Council Global Technical Lead for Climate Action in Language Education. In this role, Colm developed a wide range of interconnected, innovative set of global innovations designed to train teachers how to integrate the climate crisis in English language teaching. Colm also has extensive experience in EAP, English for Academic Purposes, ESP, English for Specific Purposes. He has 10 years experience delivering leadership, diplomacy and negotiation skills training for the Turkish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Colm is based in Jakarta, Indonesia, and is currently working on a range of projects as a freelance consultant. His current research interests include the impact of computer computer assisted language testing, CALT, on English language teaching, learning and teacher education. He's passionate about the role of language skills and cultural relations in international diplomacy, as well as equipping future leaders with the skills network and opportunities they need to drive transformative social, economic change and develop solutions to global challenges. I'll be talking to Colm about his work and more after the Teachers Talk Radio News. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. 
Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our Study Skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the EtonX curriculum in your school for free. Visit EtonX.com to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Ofsted finds itself in the news again as inspections paused for two-week period to allow inspectors to undertake mental health awareness training begin again on the 22nd of January. ITV News shared the results of a survey of almost 2,000 school leaders which showed that 97% support the removal of single word judgments. The survey carried out by NAHT Union followed the outcome of the inquest into the death of Ruth Perry. The union has urged Ofsted to implement a number of changes, including a mechanism for school leaders to halt an inspection where an inspector's conduct falls below standards, extending the notice period schools receive for inspection, and asking them to revert to a process, however temporarily, of ungraded inspections similar to those conducted during the pandemic. Meanwhile, the BBC reports that Ofsted has apologised fully for the first time for the role it played in Ruth Perry's death. The apology came at the same time as Ofsted responded to the coroner's prevention of future deaths notice. In the PFD response, new Ofsted chief Sir Martin Oliver said, such tragedies should never happen again, and that he apologised sincerely for the part inspection played in her death. Since the death of Mrs Perry, schools judged as inadequate on safeguarding alone are now re-inspected within three months. Ofsted also changed its confidentiality rules to allow heads to speak to colleagues, family, friends and health professionals about outcomes of inspections before the report is actually published. The Department for Education has committed to working with Ofsted to review things during a consultation in the spring, which it is calling the Big Listen. Education unions praised Ofsted's positive steps, but said they were only the beginning. The weather has been front and centre of the news this week, with schools across parts of Wales and Scotland being forced to close due to snow. Icy conditions and weather warnings made for tricky travel and forced school closures in areas badly affected. For those concerned that the post-pandemic impact of remote learning would mean the end of snow days, pictures on social media and local news proved that this was not always the case. But anyone worried that the icy blasts will last can be assured that the weather is set to return to normal over the next few days. Authors, including Sir Michael Morpogo and Mallory Blackman, have written an open letter urging the government to invest in early years reading. According to a book trust survey, only half of children between one and two from low-income families are read to daily, with some families struggling to access books and being in need of support. The letter from authors is addressed to both Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer and says it is not right that children from poorer backgrounds are deprived of a life rich in reading. 
Sir Michael Mapogo is president of the Charity Book Trust and helped launch their new campaign, Get Reading, to support disadvantaged children in family reading. He spoke on BBC's Radio 4's Today programme saying that the younger that children are introduced to the power of stories, the better chance there is of putting them on an extraordinary pathway of knowledge, understanding and empathy. He also said that books need to be free at the point of delivery, like the health service. A DFE spokesperson said, we are committed to raising literacy for children. But Sir Michael said that these efforts are clearly not enough. Finally, The Guardian features an article which looks at research in America that appears to show that children learn better on paper than on screens. The research follows headlines across the pond which focused on the nationwide collapse in reading scores among American youths, citing a four-point drop in the comprehension skills of 13-year-olds, falling below skill levels of 1971 for the worst performing students. Politicians appear to be assigning blame to the pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns, with remote learning being labelled as bad for students by the Biden administration. Others blame teachers who they say lobbied for lockdowns. However, the article itself focuses on a new study by neuroscientists at Columbia University's Teachers College, which appears to show there is a clear advantage to reading a text on paper rather than on a screen because it leads to what they describe as deeper reading. A sample of 59 children aged 10 to 12 were asked to complete a series of tasks, which led researchers to conclude that we should not yet throw away printed books and shouldn't rely on the digital revolution just yet. Further details can be read on the Guardian website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Hello and welcome back everyone and a welcome in particular to my special guest, Colm Downs. Thank you so much for joining me, Colm. I know it's been, it's quite late for you uh, at the moment. What have you been up to today? Hello, Graham. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. Yes, I am in Jakarta. Um, it's just gone midnight here in oh. Indonesia, uh, but it's right. I'm a bit of a night owl. My, my son is asleep now. So it's nice and quiet. Um, it, we've had a very uh, nice day in Indonesia. It's, fortunately, Jakarta's usually a very polluted city, but today we had a rare day of blue skies, no pollution, and so everybody was out enjoying the weather, uh, including myself. So, yeah, very nice, relaxing day. That's great. Well, thank you in particular for, for staying up so late to, uh, to talk. I'm, I'm definitely not a night owl. I'm an early bird, so it would be difficult for me to, uh, to be at all comprehensible at that time of night. I think you're in Mexico, am I right? Is it about 11 a.m. where you are? That's right, just after 11, 11 a.m. Uh, so I've got my day ahead of me. So, Colm, listen, I, I usually start by talking to my guests about how they became teachers, and I'd, I'd love to hear more about what it was that attracted you to education. Um, thank you very much. Well, I started when I was 18. Um, I'll try to keep this story relatively brief. I think it's quite an interesting one, really. I, yeah. I, this is back in 1998, okay? You get an idea of how old I am. But um, the government in the UK had just brought in tuition fees to go to university, so it mm. stopped being free. And I was inspired by an older sort of boy in my school who took a gap year. 
So I couldn't decide what I wanted to study at university, decided to go off and do a gap year. And I was with a fantastic organisation in the UK called Project Trust. Um, and I'd gone through a selection process. And at the end of this, I, I put down a preference to either go and work on a game reserve in Africa or do some other voluntary work in Honduras. And, and the gap year organisation sort of said, no, we think that you would be much better suited to trying to do some voluntary work as an English teacher in Sri Lanka, mm. in the Hill Estate, um, teaching the English to tea plantation workers and their children. And I, I was quite surprised by this recommendation, and I wasn't at all sure about it, and I didn't know where Sri Lanka was. But off I went, and it, you know, retrospectively, well, it was, I can easily say now it was one of the sort of best years of my life. Um, oh. And it's kind of, you know, I, I didn't go in thinking I was going to go and teach English overseas, but I ended up teaching English overseas. And in, um, that's 25 years ago now, um, 26, uh, almost, now it's 2024. And I'm still in this um, fantastic area of English language teaching and I've, I've done different bits of work in different parts of it. Wow, that's fun. That's fantastic. That's a really interesting story. So what was the experience like in Sri Lanka teaching English to the tea workers? Well, one thing, it was a, a, an interesting time in sort of t talk about technology as well, in that I had an email address, or I think I created one. Um, I've still got it, um, hotmail.com, and that was for that year overseas. But I generally kept in touch with people like, writing letters. I used to, it used to take three weeks for me to get a letter from my mum and then three weeks for her to get my, my kind of response. So I remember very vividly a whole year of not really being in touch with, you know, back home. Um, and... The experience was amazing for me. The tr most transformative thing, I think, was the opportunity to live outside my own country and to see my own country from overseas and then to be embedded in a, a kind of foreign culture. And I went through the very, I think, well-written-about kind of cliched um, stereotypes of of uh, culture, uh, culture shock, you know, when you first arrive and... Yeah. Maybe you think that your own culture or the way things are done back home is best and that this is a very hot country with strange food and strange like traditions and things like that. And wanting to kind of share all the ways we do things in the UK and then going completely full, cir full circle. And like after about six months, certainly after about 10 months, I was, you know, embracing um, all of the local traditions in Sri Lanka and, and I'd, or, you know, um, are completely integrated into society by that point and was very comfortable to the to the point that when I went back to the UK after my year overseas, I, I had reverse culture shock and I had, you know, it was a, a bit of a struggle getting used to living back in the UK. But I think overall, I mean, it did probably that experience changed me more than any other in my kind of um, formative years, more than my my sort of formal schooling and, and other things. I think it was, yeah, that, that opportunity to live in a country that wasn't the UK, that was different from my own, and then being able to yeah, compare and contrast and work out for myself, you know, which things I wanted to believe in or, or follow as, you know, best ways to live, et cetera, et cetera. 
Wow. Yes, of course. And and how long how long did you spend in the UK before you decided no, I need I need to go abroad again and and work and live? About four months. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> no, not long. Um, because although I'd done very well at GCSEs, I hadn't done brilliantly at A levels. I wasn't, mm-hmm. um, and I still wasn't sure what I wanted to study. And I did out of an interview at Belfast, no, not Belfast, in Dublin, um, about possibly doing psychology, but I didn't. And I ended up, again, very much by chance. There's a long story here, but I'll keep it short. But basically, by accident, I ended up in Greenwich in London in a a language school um, office, um, having coffee with the owner and him asking me if I would consider going to Warsaw in Poland to do some maternity cover for a couple of months. And I'd never been to Eastern Europe and I'd never been to, I, you know, there's another bit of the world I wanted to now, you know, I'd, I got the travel bug. I thought I'd go and find out about somewhere else. Um, and those four months maternity cover turned into sort of four, about five years living in Warsaw and teaching English for International House and then for the British Council. And that's quite a... Uh quite different to Sri Lanka. Completely different. Um, yeah, it was completely different. Uh, and it was, I mean, I, I was a volunteer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think Project Trust did an excellent job in giving me an, an initial grounding, if you like, or some ideas um, for for teaching as a volunteer. But I certainly wasn't a qualified professional. And one of the first things I did um, actually, just before I got the job as this maternity cover, I did go to International House in Barcelona. Oh, yes. Um, and I did my CELTA with them. And that was the, the, the very first thing I did because I wanted to get some sort of credentials to say that I, you know, formally that I, I was doing you know, this job in, in the right way. Um, and I went back about three years later to do my, my Delta. In fact, I think one of your listeners is Chris Fry, and I've got memories of Chris in Barcelona, but we haven't spoken for probably 20 years. That's um, funny. But it was very, very different, I would say. And at those five years in Poland, I went through a series of um, yeah, learning about different areas, I would, it's the best way maybe to put it, of, of this industry. Um, you know, getting to know things like business English, legal English, IELTS examining, um, you know, a, a bit more about what I might be interested in and maybe how to do this, how to do the basic job of teaching well. Yeah. Right. Of course. Yeah. And um, so what what year were you um, in Barcelona at IH? Just out of- I did my CELTA in the year 2000 in January mm-hmm. and um, there was some fantastic they had the best I think International House Barcelona at that time had one of the best reputations for teacher training it, was, and it still has a fantastically strong um, rep, no, I think they might have closed in Barcelona for, very sadly but Yes, uh, around the world International House has a fantastic reputation for teacher training teacher development and at that time in in Barcelona, there were some great trainers. Um, I was lucky, although I only had a few sessions with him. Um, Scott Thornbury was one of the trainers on the Delta, but there were other people. There was a guy called Neil Hamilton. 
uh, Vicky Rose, um, Lynn Durrant. These were oh, yeah. you know, my yeah. trainers uh, when I was doing Celta and Delta. Really, you know, they were brilliant. Fantastic. Yes, um, I'm asking because I, I also worked for the British Council in, sorry, the um, International House in, in, in Barcelona as well. So I just wondered if we might have coincided. At ah, some we might have done in the, the, a coffee, possibly. We might have been sitting in that coffee cup <laughs> on the lovely, nice terrace. Yeah, um, yeah. Delta was more next door in 2003. It was not in the main building. Uh, we were right. a few doors down. But I, yeah, I have great memories. And I knew people who, who stayed there. Actually, my Celta tutor was a very tall guy who's still in Barcelona. What's his name? Um, you all know him. He works for Oxford now, I think. Anyway, anyway, happy yeah. memories. But also, <laughs> we're going a bit off topic. We need to get onto how to change of the world and, um, um, and global, global challenges. But I would say that I... I was doing, I was in my early 20s and I remember struggling through my Delta assignments one hot summer when everybody seemed to be going to like all night parties at the beach and I, <laughs> I had to stay at home because it was a very intensive course with like a, an assignment due once a week, not like now where it's kind of nicely spaced out and you can you can do it uh, like part time or over a, over a year or two very sensibly. I think mine was like a crash, an intensive Delta in six weeks or something. Right, yeah. Now, I, I worked for them in between 1996 and 1999. Mm. And, ah, so you uh, didn't cross over, but only just. Just when, the, um, just when started the, um, they just started the internet cafe as well. Ah. Yeah, this is what I mean. So the internet was just about coming in around this time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was I was definitely using my emails. Um, you know, once I'd come back from Sri Lanka, I started emailing people regularly. Anyway, Colm, let's move on to um, what is uh, what we decided to that was going to be the um, the main topic of the show today, which is how English language teaching can help tackle some of the global challenges. Um, can you tell me, in general terms, how you think? Uh, ELT can help with major problems the world is facing at the moment? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, this is an, an enormous question, and mm. we're going to dig into different bits of it over the course of this this chat tonight, um, today, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. But kind of a general, a, a general summary, right? Because mm. I think there's an enormous way, lots and lots of different ways in which it can. One, one of the things I wanted to sort of stress from the beginning is there, there are things I think that are important about language education as a whole yeah. and helping people to be good linguists and, you know, regardless of the language almost, um, sort of communication skills and how we communicate with other people and how we, you know, so there's a bit about learning a particular target language, could be Arabic, could be French, could be English. And there's also something around how we communicate with each other and how we you know, understand each other and build relationships. And I think part of our job as language teachers is that we can help people develop those skills and become more aware of those skills, right? So that yeah. on one top level, I'd have language skills, communication skills. And on, on another level, which I think we'll dig into a lot in this conversation, is around 
what actually do people learn in an English lesson? Um, sorry, a language lesson. I don't want to go yet to English, but mm-hmm. in a language lesson, you are learning a language and you're learning you know, communication skills. But obviously, there's the content of that lesson, whether mm. we are specifically consciously, um, you know, doing a kind of content and language integrated lesson where mm. we want people to learn more about a particular um, subject, you know, information that's going to make them more knowledgeable, or whether it's indirect, you know, um, you know, all course books have topics that have been written by course book writers. Um, and I mean, for example, I, I've been very passionate most recently about climate change, for example, and an and analysis of course books could, that people have done have shown that there's quite a lot in certainly Western course books that might perpetuate a kind of um, uh, sort of ideology around capitalism and consumerism, you know, mm-hmm. without us realizing it. So, for example, if you've got textbooks that talk about um, cars or holidays or um, possessions that people buy, then then you know, indirectly you are possibly influencing people to grow up or to develop a kind of certain attitude towards um, life and certain behaviors, okay? So yeah. there's content which, which we'll, we can dig into. And then lastly, I would say English itself. And English itself, obviously I'm an English teacher and I'm a British English teacher and I'm from England. And mm-hmm. um, so I've got multiple l- 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 sort of layers on this. And English itself for me is both a cause of some inequality and a problem in the world in that you know, it's those that speak it have access to more opportunities than those that don't. And those that get better English language teaching, you know, are going to get better at English and then again, they're going to access those opportunities. But it's also a kind of potentially a great leveler in that it's one language it enables people to communicate um people who can all speak it maybe can all apply for the same jobs and have equal opportunities and can can compete equally so it can um kind of reduce inequality as well mm-hmm. and i'm sort of you know, we can sort of go and, and talk about that in a lot more detail as well if, if you like i have um, yeah, I'll stop there because there's a, a lot packed in maybe to explore or to to further um, yeah, dig into. Yeah, that. there are so many areas in what you've just just mentioned. We could, uh, we're not going to be able to cover all of them and uh-huh. certainly not in, in much detail, but it, they're fascinating. And uh, I think, uh, for example, this idea of course books and the content of course books is really interesting. I don't know if you've heard of a a project called Raise Up, which Uh uh, aims to produce alternative course books that are more diverse and inclusive for English language teaching, which I think is fascinating. And the proceeds of those books uh, go to different charities, for example, uh, to help people. that kind of thing is fascinating. Seeing more and more of this, I think. I don't know what your feelings are about what you've just said. Maybe we could speak a little bit more about this idea of what uh, course books that you 
have looked at tend to kind of promote that the capitalism yeah. of Western. No, let's, let's, let's talk about let's talk about course books. I mean, first things. My understanding is that although I I often didn't use course books because I like to be free of them and use as much authentic material as possible. I know in the the most teachers in the world, most English teachers or most language teachers don't often don't have that freedom. I say yeah. there is a freedom around content to some degree, but one of the points is that we know that most teachers in certainly like the public education systems, nearly all of them have to follow the course book and have to, yeah. you know, from their schools and for their, their ministries, you know, they've got that curriculum and they've got that, that mandate to, to deliver the course book. So they teach what's in the course book. Now, what's in the course book? I do know that series um, Raise Up. I think it's fantastic. And I know mm. that, that they tried to, show that you can have yeah i think each book or in the series you know it has for example different um genders it has people with disabilities mm -hmm. it, it, it has all sorts of different sort of people with different sort of minority or underrepresented people in that and it was almost like a, a, a showcase of what could be done mm -hmm. but they may be trying to make the point that a lot of the the big publishers Although I've got a lot of praise for the big publishers, certainly recently, I think they're trying their best to move in, you know, to embrace inclusion, to embrace climate issues, to embrace other things. They're still a bit like they've got their hands tied behind their back a bit. They've got two problems. One is that they have got a global marketplace and a lot of the countries that they want to sell to, though governments in those countries um, are not going to be happy with some of the um the kind of more let's say woke topics um or woke themes that more, uh, that more we, than that, that we might want in more than that column a lot of them mm -hmm. if they if they were to try and introduce certain aspects that we've been talking about they would have their um books banned perhaps in some yeah. countries so they kind of, they play it very safely. I mean, I even remember I had a rock climber and I wrote one book for Cambridge a long time ago and there was a picture of a rock climber and the rock climber, there was like two images and one of them was a sleeveless image and one of them had, you know, rock climber wearing sleeves and they had to go with the rock climber wearing sleeves to make sure that it would, you know, they could sell this book in certain markets because they couldn't have a, it was a female rock climber, okay? Yeah. Um, so I, I, even you know, I remember that kind of process that the editors had to go through to make sure that these books would sell. So they have that problem. Um, although I know that they are trying. I th also, they like for example, we can come back to climate change um, quite a lot throughout this conversation. Yeah. Lots of lots of people are trying to put things around like biodiversity, let's say into course books, which is fantastic, but none of them are putting things like the fossil fuel industry, <laughs> you know, the root causes of, of, you know, the, the main um, cause of CO2 in the, in the atmosphere, you know, the, all these coal mines that have basically got to be closed down. You won't see that in course books <laughs> because, and it needs to be in course books. These are the kind of things that we want, and then people need to learn about. But the other point, Graham, I wanted to make on the course book side, or two, yeah. I want to finish with two points. One is around actually 
although we are talking about global problems and the needs to and raise global problems to tackle them, and these big publishers do that at a well, they try to do that in a kind of global way. People aren't usually very interested in global problems at a global scale. And they, they don't take action at a global scale. They take action at a local level within their community. That's when people actually get um, passionate about making a difference. And so we need teachers to be trained in how to localize either their, you know, this international course book, or you need national or even more than that, localized curriculums and course books. Yeah. Um, that's, that's at the heart of actually a lot of, you know, if you're talking about trying to inspire people to make change, it's the localization and the personalization of content. Yeah. And some of that is happening with the publishers as well. They, I mean, publishers are producing a lot more sort of national course books or regional course books, or even, um, I'm not sure about local course books, maybe it's happening in the bigger countries. Yeah, it's in, in that I've seen, a, I mean, I don't know everything globally. I've seen, um, the, sometimes there's obviously there's lots of different approaches that are made. Um, sometimes ministries try to write their own, and I think yeah. that's very admirable. I don't think that they invest enough money in it, um, usually, and then the quality is not as good as they hope. Um, and obviously these days, course book is much more than just a book it's got all the bells and whistles with the the you know the interactive version and the website you need and the um video content sometimes so if you know big these, the big publishers have got you know, much more sophisticated um content but i know that there are medium-sized publishers that are very good like garnet and um and and others that are, have been commissioned by um, countries to to write course books specifically for that country and do a good job. I think Macmillan wrote a series for Palestine. Or I used to work in mm -hmm. Palestine. I know Wendy Arnold was involved in that. I think it was a a good job. Um, so there are yeah, there's sorts of sorts of innovations going on right now here in Indonesia. The it's quite interesting they've. they've so it's, this is an approach to the whole curriculum and not just the English um, curriculum, mm -hmm. okay? Where they, the sort of very progressive, innovative young minister has is trying to push through something called Curriculum Murdica, which stands for the uh, Emancipated Curriculum or Freedom Curriculum. Uh, and the, the ideology behind this is that it's going to free teachers to create content that is locally relevant and 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 locally specific um mm. which is fantastic in principle the reality though in in indonesia is it's had a troubled kind of inception because it's a too big a shift at the moment for teachers who've basically they're not used to being asked to create their own locally relevant content they're used to delivering the, the curriculum you know top down you know from, you know, as 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 they've been told to, and as they've been trained to. Yeah. So I think I think most teachers as well don't really have a lot of time to um, to actually do a lot of localization or a lot of uh, materials preparation or planning other than the 
um, you know, doing what you're, what they are um, given uh, in the course book, for example, just the the amount of time that they have to spend on on doing that kind of extra activity is is very low, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think hopefully there'll be some teachers listening to this. So if if I was going to give advice and be a bit more specific about what I think teachers or teacher educators or ministries even should do as a kind of like how to you know, tackle global issues through English language teaching. Right? When we're talking about the course book, mm-hmm. it's like, well, one, I think we need to train teachers, you know, how to do more localization and personalization um, that in initial teacher education and then, you know, in-service teacher training to get them to be sort of more confident in doing that. But then two, this is maybe, and and I don't think that's controversial, I think people have said that for years, but two, and this is the maybe more interesting one, and again, it's not me, there's a guy, an eco-linguist called Aaron Stibby, who Mm. I think is an amazing um, guy that not enough people know about his work, but he talks about us, um, us, the industry, or even teachers need to kind of look at their course books and or, and say, is this a kind of environmentally responsible course book? Is this unit or is this lesson um, environmentally or socially responsible in its messaging? In its, you know, what what are we teaching here? In it, you know, the language is one thing, but also the lesson as a whole. Um, and if it might be a lesson which is, you know, environmentally irresponsible, then maybe that course book needs to, you know, change or we need to, we need mm-hmm. to think about that. And I think that's very interesting. Maybe, I sh- maybe it shouldn't be the teachers. Or, or, I think teachers, let's empower teachers. Teachers could, could, should be trained to be able to do that um, themselves, but also probably that kind of job is something that needs to be done at a higher level as well. So what was the surname of that um, uh, uh, educator? Stib- I, I, it's S-T-I-B-B-E. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you pronounce it Stibby or Stib. Uh, he's got a website. Got I it. Sh- got it. Yeah. I, I looked him up and I couldn't find them, which is why I was asking, because I think there may be people listening who are doing the same thing. He's Professor in ecological linguistics okay really interesting at the university of gloucester yeah and he's produced like training courses and a website which maybe we can find or i'll find before the end of this conversation which are free to help train teachers how to do what i'm talking about how to sort of um look at your own material look at existing material and and sort of sort of ask yourself is this environmentally responsible um he's also done analysis of himself like you can go and look at his stuff he's analyzed course books and has examples of of ways in which course books maybe are not being um as environmentally responsible as they should be but yeah he's an eco-linguist there's a facebook page a facebook group as as well which wonderful again i could probably find if I have a quick look. Let's have a look. But I think just on a general, to, to sort of pull back and look at this from a general point of view, I think, you know, teachers do have an awful lot of influence 
in, as you said, in particular language teachers, when it comes to content, there's a lot of, if they're not constrained by following set, uh, set course books, then the kind of things you can bring up in uh, in schools is is quite quite large. You can bring a lot of attention to global issues, can't you, as a as a language teacher? Yeah, there are again. Um, I mean, I've listed it in different places. I'm drawing on other people's research and other people's mm -hmm. kind of comments. I think as we, as we all do, but yeah, English teachers or language teachers have probably more freedom than nearly any other subject teacher around the content of their lesson. And that is, you know, incredibly exciting in a way. Um, like I, I was, I had complete freedom in a sense when I used to teach. I mean, I was, I was in private language schools mostly. And although there was a, maybe a linguistic objective, maybe vocabulary mm -hmm. aim or gra grammatical aim that I had to, you know, make sure that students maybe, you know, they, they'd been practicing the third conditional or the past tense, mm -hmm. you know, how, what content I used in order for them to, to practice the third conditional was entirely up to me, right? So then if I, if my students were particularly passionate about the environment um, or about climate justice or about um, something else, then we could talk about that in the lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's an, you know, an incredible opportunity. Um, yeah. So related to that, Colm, you, you have been very much involved in that area in particular, this idea of climate action and language education, and you've done a lot of work um, with that. How did you first get involved with that and what kind of role have you played since you first became involved? Yeah, I well, I was in. I've always. I think I would. I'll go back and I would say that mm -hmm. you know, since I, I wrote um, Cambridge English for job hunting. Yeah. In two thousand and eight, because I wanted basically the my passion behind that was that I was trying to in my view, I had lots of people asking me to help them with their CVs and their cover letters, and there was no book out mm. there to, to address that at the time. So I gave a talk at a BC conference in Milan, and, and I was lucky that there was somebody from Cambridge who asked me to write a book. But the reason I wanted to do it was I, I wanted to address an issue, which was I felt that there was um, very qualified non-native speakers going for jobs, unfairly mm. not getting the jobs because there were native speakers you know, performing better in interviews and had submitted yeah. better cover letters. So my, you know, this was my going back a long way that I was very passionate and I've always been about tackling issues. So that was around tackling a kind of injustice or an inequality that I saw. Um, and then since then, I've always, you know, my career has gone into different areas where I've tried to do a lot of ESP or CLIL. Um, so... Yeah, and I English for specific purposes, or you know, um, so English for tackling issues, and then in the run up to the UK's hosting of the COP um, annual uh, summit, which I think was in 
right, well, it was in Glasgow. Um, you know, we were, it was during the pandemic and uh, I was fortunate that I was into my early meetings with different members of sort of the British Council's global team. And there were people like uh, Mike Solly in the, now in the research team and um, Alison Barrett was the global lead for the, the British Council's kind of enormous, and it was, she turned it into a very big kind of, um, it was called the Climate Connection oh, yes. um, global program uh, across all of the British Council's kind of areas of work, okay? Yeah. Um, and I can't remember how, I think I just had lots of ideas. I was probably a bit outspoken and a bit opinionated in one meeting and said, well, what about doing a podcast? Or what about doing a, a MOOC to, around this? Um, and then I was asked if I would like to sort of bring together a, a, a small group of people, mm -hmm. um, you know, to further brainstorm some ideas around this. And, and then I think one of the good things about the British Council has, has been that you can't get funding for things without a lot of work going into it, a lot of thought going into it. You have to almost like compete with other colleagues globally or other regions by submitting your kind of um, your your project based plans um, with a lot of evidence. So you know your kind of theory of change model with um, you know w what is this going to achieve and how are you going to yeah. measure the impact of it. So we we came up with some ideas, and there was a. It was almost like a voluntary group of people across the British Council network who worked on this in addition to their regular job. Um, right. And we we were we had a bit of funding from that global program that I think was partly because of the UK's hosting of COP, mm. um, and partly maybe it was around the time that there was greater recognition around climate change as a big issue for everybody, including education. Mm. And it's interesting because at that time, I mean, I the real leaders, again, I wasn't a leader. I was just getting into this. I thought, this is fantastic. But there were people in the network, okay, and I want to give them a quick shout-out because it's mm. important that they are recognized for their groundbreaking work. So there was a guy called Owen Llewellyn mm. who was – a senior teacher for the British Council at that time in uh, in Tunisia. He was in mm -hmm. Tunisia. And he, again, he was a senior teacher, just doing regular sort of important English teaching. But for 10 years, he had his own ELT sustainable um, uh, website, and he'd been teaching teachers how to integrate environmental issues into English language teaching kind of before anybody else and people around the world who cared about this had found him out, um, you know, and, and Owen quickly came on board um, as a, a kind of key figure for me to help me like learn about what could be done. And he ended up writing one of the modules for the MOOC that we put together. And then another great, you know, they, I think they're quite well known, but there's a Facebook group called ELT Footprint, Yes. which is run by uh, Christopher Graham, uh, Kerry Jones, Catherine Billsborough, and Dan Barber. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was Dan Barber who, during a during during and one of the there's an ELT Innovate conference in Barcelona, and uh, yes. I think during one of those, Dan announced or 
uh, a climate crisis, a declaration of a climate crisis in the ELT industry um, a couple of years back. And anyway, the, there was a formation of this Facebook group. And again, those four people uh, ended up doing a lot of work uh, on different initiatives. Christopher Graham particularly um, worked very, very closely with me. And the point I wanted to get to with all of this, a bit of a ramble, is that Christopher Graham and I and another sort of um, re researcher started looking at what was happening in the industry. Yeah. And what was happening across the ELT industry in, let's say, 2020 wasn't very much or it was nascent it was like emerging but what is happening now i would say in 2024 it seems to be almost becoming mainstream right like um sust you know, sustainability as the main or the kind of a topic that runs throughout course books so if you look at cambridge or oxford recently in the last couple of weeks cambridge just before christmas Sustainability is becoming like the big topic for ELT publishers. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? What the um the climate action in language uh, teaching um, project that you were involved in? What kind of feedback did you get from teachers? Was it was it all positive? And what kind of things uh, did they kind of say? if you heard any effects of how they were able to integrate it into their courses and whether their students were, you know, reacting well, et cetera. Do you have any kind of yeah. stories about okay. that? Or? I'll tell you, Graham, and I'll, I'll be very honest and frank, because I'm a freelance consultant now and I love the British Council, but I'm going to talk very sort of frankly about the strengths and weaknesses as I see mm -hmm. it, maybe, um, and uh, sort of as a, as a, after 20 years, somebody who's outside as well, right? Mm. Um, the feedback, first of all, that we got was phenomenal, really good. I think our MOOC that still runs, it ran um, in November most recently, so it runs once a, a year. The first couple of runs, it, was, uh, you know, it broke records for mm. the self-paced, self-accessed, self-kind of um, uh, a MOOC that you sign up for Know, independently you know it had yeah. four or five thousand teachers on the first run and you know the the, the we, we asked everybody you know to complete uh, evaluation forms and it was fantastic like the positive feedback and individual stories of teachers saying that they were passionate about the environment wanted to learn how to do this but were not sure how to go about it you know they they loved it but um one of the things I want to say about this is one of the challenges, as I see, with teacher professional development done by the British Council, done by Cambridge, done by almost anybody, is that it's often the most passionate teachers, the best teachers, the, you know, the strongest teachers that take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah. And of course we want to provide them and, and that will trickle down and they will pass it on to their schools and they're maybe the change makers in their, in their communities. But it's still a very small number of people or a small number of teachers in nearly every country, you know, certainly globally. Yeah. And so I'm always, I was tremendously excited during the pandemic about this. Oh, I can suddenly, you know, the digital innovations, we can reach 
tens of thousands of teachers, hundreds of thousands of teachers across across the country. But maybe experience or personal, um, yeah, personal experiences in Indonesia and others have. I, I'm challenged now all the time about how do we reach everybody, you know, and yeah. it's, it's only really when ministries get involved, in my experience, and tell teachers that they have to do something, yeah. um, that that you can reach like significant numbers of teachers to, or embed things, you know, mandate it into the curriculums or into systems. But going back, like what. Well, I think teachers are on the area of climate change, basically, that the general feeling is that teachers want, want uh, you know, they, they, they agree that they can play an important role, mm-hmm. but they still are not entirely sure how to do that. Um, and maybe themselves lack confidence around the big issues around around climate change. So an, an enormous amount of work still needs to be done in teacher training mm-hmm. and in maybe ministry policies around the content and training teachers so that teachers get to a point where they feel confident yeah. um, to do that. Now, it's interesting what you were saying about this idea of it only really being taken up by the you know, passionate teachers or teacher educators and that the majority uh, aren't really responding in ways that you'd hope. But I think that's across the board, isn't it? I think it's it's always difficult that you can provide all of these opportunities for teacher education, teacher development to everybody, but it's often only a small percentage of really passionate educators that take advantage of of them and i don't think there's much you can do about that because in a lot it's what it goes back to what i said before is like there's so many teachers who whose days are so full and they're so busy with just with the idea of trying to work to survive etc in a lot of places they do so many different jobs um a lot of them that they don't really have any extra time or um, energy to be able to do the additional stuff. So I think one of the things that um, is really good about some of the stuff that you were involved in producing is that making it easy for teachers, having set lesson plans, materials available that they can just pick up that are freely accessible, that they can be able to do, makes it a lot easier for teachers to be able to take advantage of it so i think that's one of the real pluses for it but i kind of really i sympathize with a lot of teachers that they're not able to kind of have the time to look at these things and incorporate them although i do think kind of maybe the pressure of students these days um you know younger younger people do seem to be a lot more um aware of the the challenges and the increasing need to focus on issues such as the environment and to do something about it than than perhaps their teachers maybe are. I don't know what you think about that. I'll just pick up on two things you said there. Um, one, yeah, I completely agree with you on like teachers being under enormous pressure. I mean, the, the workload that teachers have is phenomenal in most countries. For the, the amount of Know, classes and students, homework and assignments. Um, I mean, I taught for years. I know 
and I, I didn't have, you know, I don't think if, as full a load as I'm, I know most public school teachers mm-hmm. do. So I, you know, I think it's, yeah. And to, to expect or to ask teachers to do professional de- development on top of that, there needs to be a very, you know, big incentive. And the, there needs to be time, ideally, you know, ministries of education. I, in Indonesia, had lots of conversations here about trying to encourage them to free teachers up you know, once a week or, you know, once a fortnight to give them some time in their, their, their week for professional development because that's a, it's a big issue. Um, and then, yeah, making it easy, as easy as possible, as accessible as, as possible. I think although <laughs> I was saying that these webinars and digital things are still only attended by the most passionate teachers, I should also say that it is, I'm overjoyed by the enormous potential of, of technology and things being online, right? So that I now have teachers in Papua or in you know, islands in Indonesia that never would have had professional development because they were just too far away and we only used to do things face to face in like the big cities in Java and Jakarta and we might have had 200 teachers in Bali in like one session for one week but now you can have like thousands across the whole country for like for free mm. that is that is incredible um but yeah so on on the, dig- the digital side is is good the the, uh, the the giving the teachers more time in their their um, timetable for professional development is is really important. Um, sorry, what was the last point, Graham, that you made? Because I've lost track almost. Um, just the idea of of making it easy for I think it was making it easy for teachers that this idea of uh, of producing things that they can easily incorporate that are freely accessible. I think that's what, what I was talking about, wasn't it? There was something else you said that I was going to pick up on. <laughs> ah, I think it was more to do with the climate thing, but... um. Uh, oh, sorry, oh, I know what the it was. I know younger what it was. people about, I think, putting no, pressure no, on their teachers. It was about how hard maybe it is, and, the t- and you were talking about the students being more knowledgeable. Yeah, I'm more aware. Yeah, so I one of the things that again I believe in, I think, as a principle of like good teaching and 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 approaches. When I do my sort of teacher training, um, I often talk about teacher like teachers becoming more of a facilitator of learning um, and learner centered, and trying to empower their students to like do more and you know give their students. A chance to take over the topic for the day, or to you know, to give presentations, and the teacher maybe not to be at the front of the classroom, but to be at the back of the classroom, and and just give some language um, feedback, and 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 say, hey, I'm not the subject matter expert, I'm the the English or the the language expert, but that approach, when teachers are confident with that approach, I also feel that that takes the pressure off them. I think that this teacher centered teaching must be phenomenally exhausting <laughs> yeah um basically if you're talking a lot and you're at the center of the center of the class i can understand how it's easier to control large groups which is often why it's done but it's also um tiring so yeah maybe 
sort of learner centered teaching, getting teachers to empower their students is a way of 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 reducing that pressure a bit, hopefully. Definitely, definitely. What about other areas apart from climate change? Mm-hmm. There are so many different aspects of our global challenges at the moment that you could introduce into English language teaching. Some of them may well be more appropriate depending on the place and the context and the, the learners than others. But do you think there are any sort of, in, in general terms, are there, are there areas that you think really need um, a focus on and that can be um, integrated into language teaching? Yeah, um, I think nearly any any issue, um, you can have a, a, a language education lens. Mm-hmm. Um, like people who are passionate about climate change can sort of say, well, we could have an environmental lens on everything and, and we should do that. But if you took, I know, for, I'll just raise two. Mm-hmm. Um, one, again, I wasn't so strongly involved in this area, but I was kind of involved a little bit there was some there is and there continues to be some again fantastic work by the british council around this area of what's called language for resilience and the important work there they've got you know they did some research into this initially to like to demonstrate that it actually is a thing you know the important role that languages um play in for example um the need for let's say refugees Mm-hmm. Um, to develop language skills to help them to integrate um, successfully into new um, places in the world, maybe to um, get the sort of support services that they need or get get into school or get into university, um, but also emotionally and in lots of different ways. And if people are more interested in that, um, there's, there's very good um, research publications and projects mainly happening in the Middle East and North Africa, you know, where there's a lot of refugees. But now, obviously, Ukraine, I know that there's, um, you know, there's a lot of Ukrainians that have had to leave. Yeah. So you know, this is an incredibly important area. Um, a, an area that I was more involved in, mm-hmm. um, in my first kind of work, my first job for the British Council in Indonesia um, I was what is called the Peacekeeping English Project Manager. Oh, yes. Um, and if people have been in the British Council long enough, they'll know that there used to be a global, what was called Peacekeeping English Program. Yeah. With, uh, it, was a, it was actually joint funded between uh, different departments of the UK government. Anyway, there used to be a lot of different peacekeeping. There was a Peacekeeping English Project Officer in, in Poland once upon a time. He's still a good friend of mine. Anyway, um, my what I did in that role, although I was helping, um, doing a lot of um, teacher training for military and police language schools across Indonesia, my main role was actually to try to support the English language skills of Indonesian peacekeepers, whether they were military peacekeepers or police peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. And in this area, we spent a lot of time um talking about what's called intraoperability okay so when you go on a peacekeeping mission in say lebanon you've got peacekeepers from all different countries um so all those peacekeepers 
basically need very strong English language skills, or and they need ESP. They need English for peacekeeping because a lot of their work um, is very formulaic. Uh, the kind of conversations that they'll have are quite repetitive. The kind of reports that they need to write are quite. You know, every day they write a situation report, and the structure of that report. You know, you can train people how to write a really good um, daily situation report. So, I worked with uh, a few again experts in different places, including Westminster University and, and a few others, on developing what we called English for um, UN military peacekeeping. Um, again, sort of ESP and, and interoperability. But again, again, how going back to what I said earlier, that it's not just English language skills, although English language skills are really important in in military operations, language skills and how we communicate are very important in solving kind of war and conflict. Because if you're a a soldier or a peacekeeper, you need training in how to better gain the trust and integrate with the local population. Yeah. So that might be not necessarily English language that you need, but you need to learn maybe some Arabic or whatever language of the country that you're in and, and also how you behave and how you communicate, you know, take your sunglasses off and um, all sorts of, you know, listening rather than you know, speaking so much. Um, yeah. So there's a lot in, in it and it's, is, I think it's just a fascinating area, and I think that these kind of language skills and communication skills have a very big role to play um, in in all sorts of areas, especially kind of areas like war and conflict. Yeah. Now, I remember many years ago, back when I was um, quite involved and very interested in games for language learning and teaching, going to a conference where I sat next to and chatted to one of the um, representatives from a, uh, a 3D series games developer that had produced a game called Tactical Iraqi, uh-huh. which which was uh, it back, I think it, it, it won a Best Series Games Award back in, I'm talking about 2007, et cetera. The idea is that this had been um, produced to help the US military actually become more culturally aware um, and to be able to speak some um, language of, of the language of Iraq to be able to um, to diffuse situations. So similar to what you were saying, but it was a sort of simulated 3D game to be able to help soldiers deal with kind of real life social communications, the protocols with culture etc and to become more cultural awareness i think there's so much of that going on and the need for that is so important isn't it no no definitely definitely i think i remember winning the hearts and minds and and they weren't very good at winning the hearts and minds Mm. um partly because of obviously military action um that's the main thing but then I think communication skills, you know, is, is played a major role in it in it too. Um, going back to peacekeeping, on pe- mm-hmm. the majority of the most people don't know this, but the majority of the world's peacekeepers are from developing countries. They're not from the developed. The developed world often pays for peacekeeping, but it's developing countries that are 
you know, they're um, sending their their troops, their soldiers. And there isn't actually a language skills um, test for military peacekeepers for political reasons at the moment. Right. Um, and so often the language skills of military peacekeepers is very low. Yeah. Um, and that has caused, there are incidents where, you know, in the worst case, people will end up, you know, getting, you know, losing their life because of a miscommunication and, and, mm. and things have gone wrong. But it can also mean that the whole mission, you know, hasn't been very successful. So a lack of language skills is, you know, has been pointed out, even in the, you know, there are reports around peacekeeping of how to improve it, that they, they know that improving English and local languages is, is, is key. They haven't brought in tests. In some areas, interestingly enough, you can, people can look this up, but for individual police officers, that's the actual title, an individual police officer, um, there is a specific UN English test, and it is phenomenally difficult because um, I've been helping the police in Indonesia train people to pass this test. And I think the failure rate is about 80%. It's a very specific wow. um, police English UN test. It's called UNSAT, um, S-A-A-T, uh, UN yeah, English test. So there's you know, minim minimum English re language requirements um, and other kind of communication skills I think are necessary and, and will play a key role uh, in the future. Definitely. It kind of makes sense that that should be given more importance, as you say. So, um, Colm, when, when we were discussing topics for the show, you also mentioned that you're interested in the potential of trans the transformative impact of artificial intelligence and language assessment and ai is such a hot topic at the moment and the ai and assessment is something that has come up a couple of times on the show already so i think i'd love to talk to you a little bit about that uh, before we finish no absolutely i think if there was a thread running through through kind of my work and and maybe this kind of conversation it's all about um tackling inequality i think inequality is the kind of route to actually a lot of the global problems as well um yeah. and there's inequality in climate change and who it impacts there's inequality in you know, in all sorts of areas and i think that language skills can help tackle inequality and i think the technology and ai um can, can massively tackle inequality too. Obviously, what people will say, and I want to highlight the kind of counter-argument to begin with, is that they'll say, and they're right, that you need to have an internet connection, you need to have a digital device, and that, not, every, and that not everybody does, and, that, that, and, and until everybody does, then you know, obviously these kind of AI or technological solutions could make things worse. And yeah, that, that's absolutely true. But I tell you... Um, like, for example, in Indonesia, um, well, I'll talk about the, 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 the devices and things to begin with. I think that's interesting and important. And, and Indonesia is fascinating, right? It's got massive inequality in the country. Very, I live in a city full of millionaires, but also full of very, very, you know, millions of poor people who live side by side. Majority of the country is very poor, but there's a lot of wealth and a lot of people. Now, 
only um, about 5% of the population have regular access to a computer, right? So not many people have a computer or a laptop, right? But 85% of the country now have regular access to a mobile phone, a smartphone, Mm, which is enormous amount of people. Um, And I would also want to add that the way people in Indonesia and Asia, I think in general, are able to use a mobile phone and a variety of kind of quite advanced and innovative ways. The majority of Indonesians have a smartphone and they can use it in very innovative ways. And then, so going on to sort of, I'm fantastically excited about um, specifically kind of smartphones um, and what you can do, but also just generally AI powered language assessment mm-hmm. um, is one of the things that it's doing is it basically is making sort of assessment much more accessible, okay, um, to everybody. Now, there are legitimate questions, and a lot of people are asking these questions at the moment, is about how good are these tests and are they good enough, right? Um, I'll mention, like, so I work or have been doing some work for English Score, which is a, a joint venture between a, a UK company and the British Council, okay? Um, it's very innovative. Um, it's all on a mobile phone. It's not as accurate as an IELTS test, okay? Um, but, for example, in Indonesia, an IELTS test is 3 million rupiah, which is about 160 pounds. So, obviously, yeah. it's a very expensive test. Whereas an English score test on your phone is free to do the test, but the certificate obviously is not free, okay? So if you wanted to get a rough idea of your CEFR level, anybody who's got a phone in their pocket could do that right now, any teacher, any high school student. And for me, that is enormous because nearly, you know, the majority of teachers in Indonesia have no idea what their CEFR level is. So there's two things, one, I wanted to say here on this one, is the ability for everybody now to get a reasonably good idea of their level of English across all four skills. That's the first thing. Um, I think that's, that's kind of pretty transformative um, in, it, in itself. There is a, obviously a, a question that people will ask is like, well, does everybody need need to know um, their their CEFR level? Um, I, I think that it that they do, um, and that uh, that enabling them to to kind of be more aware of of their own level will also improve their kind of what we call assessment literacy for for teachers. So it will help them in sort of assessing their students, which is also in, in, incredibly important. Um, but the other point I wanted to make, and this is the maybe the key point and the kind of counter-argument to those that say, oh, but it's not as good as these high-stakes, very expensive tests, um, mm-hmm. these you know, really accurate tests. The key point I wanted to make is that 
it's miles better than the tests that are being used in Indonesia or are being used in developing countries, right? So only a tiny percentage of people in Indonesia are going to take IELTS or ever going to take IELTS or an official TOEFL. Right? Mm-hmm. But literally millions of people in Indonesia in school or to get a government job, um, you know, the, every year about 2 million Indonesians apply for a, uh, a government uh, civil servant job. And as part of that requirement, they take an English language test and about 99% of them take a what I call a fake TOEFL. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they pay about $5 for this. And these locally produced local tests, um, you know, I respect everybody that's engaged in you know, trying to test and trying to you know, help people understand their schools. But to be honest, the local tests that are used, you know, that are widespread, are, 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 you know, are not very good, <laughs> are bad. Let's say, I'll be brutally honest. They're not actually very helpful at all. It's a right. kind of multiple choice grammar and vocabulary. A kind they're of not, they're not very reliable, basic, I guess. A basic placement test from the you know nineteen nineties, yeah, um, that somebody's got hold of and has kind of repurposed and recycled and turned into a business model. And that's the the reality is what I'm keen is I'm keen for those kind of these kind of not very efficient tests to be replaced by free or much more affordable um, AI tests in countries where the very expensive high stakes tests are never going to be affordable at scale. And it's, it's, it's not, it's a spectrum, I would say, um, from left to right, from a kind of, you know, really bad test up to kind of IELTS and uh, TOEFL IBT at the other end, you know, where you got your gold standard, fantastic tests, but also expensive tests. Now, they will come down in price um, and we'll meet somewhere in the middle. But there, again, the challenge that the global, that the British Council has is that, you know, it's got a global product that it needs to promote globally, right? And I'm talking mainly about slightly less wealthy countries, you know, looking for solutions for countries that are, um, you know, uh, yeah, are, are not very rich. I've been rambling a bit there, Graham. I hope I've been clear enough. No, it, it makes sense, definitely, Colin. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, other than AI and assessment, is this generative AI, has that sort of caught your attention? Do you use it at all? Yeah, or just, okay, on the last thing with generative or the AI and assessment, I think basically, like, I don't know where it's going in the future, but probably it's so powerful. Um, like anybody who uses a computer regularly, it will probably have, there probably already are, or there will be soon kind of uh, widgets or things that you will be able to plug in so that it will be able to give you a constant kind of uh, monitor of your your level of English you know, based on all of your interactions on a daily basis. So just like your smartwatch will tell you your heart rate, you'll probably have tools that will basically say, you know, today you're a B1 in in uh, speaking because we've been listening to all of your conversations, that type of thing. Um, 
I pay. I will tell you. I'm now a. I'm paying for ChatGPT four, and I've been using ChatGPT four. I'm writing a report at the moment um, with a group of experts, but I am using ChatGPT four to help um, do some editing and give me some suggestions. And it is speeding up, I think, the process, and it is actually making some improvements. But you know, so my view is, and I think others have talked about this, is I'm, I'm trying to make it my slave, and I'm using it as a tool to help me. But I am also a bit blown away by it and a bit scared by it when I ask it to do creative things like tell me a story, and it can do it in you know five seconds. Yes, no, it's uh, it's fascinating. The yeah. Uh... The more I use it, the more um, I'm blown away by it as well. And I still even ha- I haven't even ventured into the paid version yet. I'm kind of holding off. But uh, <laughs> the people I talk to who have tried it out, uh, or like yourself, are persuading me that this is something I should really um, invest in. So I think I'll probably end up doing it. Yeah, I I thought because I was working on some yeah big bits of work, and I wanted to have a a as good a um response as possible i didn't know how how long i would keep my subscription for but i thought it was worth it as an investment for this bit of work mm-hmm. um and i guess now i'm using the the, the kind of chat gpt4 it's in, some people you know the guy who who sam altman isn't it the guy who's the ceo oh, yeah. he got fired for 24 hours or then came back and i i don't know how true it is but the rumor i heard was that they'd come up with a version that was about 10 or 100 times more powerful than the current one. And um, there were people in the company that said that this was a bit too powerful and that we shouldn't be you know, pursuing this. Um, so they, they, that was the reason for removing Sam Altman. But then obviously the shareholders and everybody else, there was a big backlash. And so he came back. But I don't know, there's other rumors about who got... Yeah, I think we have to be wary about all of the rumors. There's so many, so much attention, and so many, uh, I think, so many news outlets that are desperate to try and uh, have scoops and create stories around it. That I think, uh, I'm not sure, but, <laughs> but it's an interesting thing, and it, it, it behind that is the kind of fear, isn't it, that people have with this, is that they are, you know, fearful that their jobs may be uh, replaced by AI or that this is something that uh, is going to be out of control and have serious damaging effects on the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I can, I mean, I used to spend hours creating lesson plans and now, you know, and I, you know, um, you can see people like I, I follow people like Joe Dale um, mm. and others, uh, Nick Peachy and, and others, and I've seen their, their they they give fantastic kind of um, webinars where they will demonstrate for teachers how you can you know use these tools to instantly kind of create much better lessons than than you could in you know that would take you hours and do it very quickly. So I can see how teachers could both be excited by that, but also a bit worried. Um, And I can also see how if you're not a very fluent teacher and we're not very confident in English, we're quickly maybe moving. A lot of focus, Graham, I think is given to ELT like in public schools and work Mm -hmm. with ministries of education. But an area that 
I see in Asia and in Indonesia that is growing massively that not enough people, I think, talk about is what's happening in the private sector. Right. And there is enormous growth here in Indonesia in the private sector um, for kind of what it has been during the pandemic was kind of more online tuition, okay? The kind of business yeah. that exploded in China, right? The kind of yeah. richer parents who want their kids, give their kids a competitive advantage would pay for private lessons that used to be face-to-face. -face. Now these are private lessons online, um, and, and that is exploding. But the next thing is going to be your kind of private AI tutor, right? Because it will be cheaper and it will always be there. And and we don't really know what impact that's going to have. I think. Yes. No. I'm I'm fascinated by all that. I think there are there are a number of startups I've noticed. Uh, I noticed one that um, was a U.S. startup that uh, is, but they're based in Mexico, that are uh, pursuing these kinds of um, business opportunities. I think uh, there's like an AI language tutor. Um, but also, even just with ChatGPT, if and its ability for the you know even the non-paid version that I have has the ability to um, listen to you and speak to you, so you can use it as a conversation partner in a foreign language, uh, oh. and you can actually ask it about grammar and vocabulary and to get you get translation. So you can actually do that at the moment um with the the tools it's just it it'll be packaged into ai tutor kind of programs with yeah. uh in more sort of structured way i think uh it's it's happening as well isn't it no definitely i remember i i with a couple of other there was a elt jam and um i think it was you know your two or they now they they're they're called something else i think learn, learn jam now i think learn jam but um we did webinars about how smart speakers could be used you know like talk to amazon alexa because it will never get tired in order yeah. to improve your your spoken english and i thought this is going to change the world and it didn't um again so but i do there is the potential there and like you said you can ask you could submit your practice IELTS essay to ChatGPT and ask it to use the IELTS um, writing rubric, you know, criteria, assess your answer, give you feedback, um, tell you where you how to improve your draft, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It can do you know, incredible things, like you said. So yeah. it, it's, it's exciting. And I think that there's both, like I said, again, that and I don't know um, what the answer is, but we're good, like, bringing this conversation almost wrapping it all up is like, it's going to cause greater um, inequality, but it also has the potential to reduce inequality. It's a weird kind of paradox, I fear, fear find, yeah. and fear, I would say, about kind of technology. Um, I think we're in a, a, a pivotal moment, aren't we, Colm, I think, where we we can decide now which of those is given the emphasis, whether it's used to create more inequality or whether it's used to actually solve some of the inequality that we have in the world is, is in our hands. And it may well be in the hands of every one of us in the decisions we make 
of what to use and what not to use and what uh, what to do. But it also is definitely in the hands of governments and uh, decision makers as well. And it's become apparent that I think a lot of what we decide upon now is going to have a long-lasting effect maybe in the way that the world changes. No, definitely. No, definitely. I I want to, just on the sort of technology side, I don't know what it's like in South America where you are or in Mexico. North um, America. North America. Mexico is no, in North no, America. I, 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 yeah, I enough. Of that. You're not in South America. I, but, uh, I, I did a webinar the, recently and I got told to call it LATAM. Definitely not, not oh, South America, sorry. Another Latin one's America. The, the Americas. The Americas. Yeah, it's a good one. But um, one of the, like, an exciting thing um, in Indonesia, um, we've got a new uh, teachers association called yeah. ITEL, which is Indonesia Technology Enhanced Language Learning. Uh, and it's run really by young um, academics who are passionate about language teaching and technology. They've got a their conference coming up in July. And it certainly is kind of where a lot of the most exciting conversations um, around around language teaching are. Although it's also interesting that the president of that association is a fantastic guy, uh, Pat Jati. he constantly has to remind people that um, these tools are all just tools and that good pedagogy is more important than the latest gimmick or the latest um, yeah. app. Uh, and, we, 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 and, and not to get carried away with just on focused on the tool and not and not sound teaching practice. Oh yeah, that's that's the big thing, isn't it really? Because um if the focus is on the tool then um it's you can be dazzled by the I don't know I can't remember the, the term, but it's like the shiny thing uh mm -hmm. syndrome. Whereas, you know, the uh idea of uh you can be overwhelmed by the actual wonderful things that something does without actually using it for the benefit of, in our case, for language teaching or learning. Yeah. But I think what I hope it's going to do is, and this is the tool, like technology, AI, I think all of it, basically my hope is that now English is a global language. I think it has led to some, um, it is the cause of some, inequality in the world because basically as i go back to what i said right at the beginning of the conversation is that people who who have english language now have great opportunities i think actually we should wrap things up now yeah um, as it's gone over an hour and a half it's, it's been fascinating talking to you thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest i hope you've enjoyed it i've loved it graham and again i wish um i I look forward to seeing you. I think we are both going to be at Aya Tafel uh, this year in Brighton, and I look forward to conversations. I remember, I think you had I last tried to come to a talk of yours, and it was packed out um, on AI and maybe gamification uh, uh, a couple of years ago. So I look forward to seeing you and, and lots more discussions. So thanks yes, again for inviting me, Graham. Um, it's been a pleasure. Uh, great, Colm. Thank you very much. Um, well, I hope you managed to get some sleep now that uh, we finished uh, talking. And, um, you know, I will definitely look forward uh, to speaking to you about this and other things uh, at the ITEFL conference. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, everybody. And bye-bye. Uh,
Bye. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the EtonX curriculum in your school for free. Visit EtonX.com to find out more. So thank you very much, uh, everybody, for listening. Thank you to all of you who uh, joined in live. And thank you again to everyone who is listening back on the recording. That brings us to the end of today's Twilight Show. Uh, Many thanks in particular to today's special guest, Colm Peter Downs, which uh, was fascinating to talk to Colm about all of his work and a lot of different subjects there. I felt we could have talked for a lot longer. So that's it from me. There are Teachers Talk radio shows all week on all manner of interesting topics. So please listen in live or to some of the other recordings of the shows. I hope you'll join me again next week at the same time. Bye for now. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.